Well, this morning, we're continuing in our series that we have titled The Standard. It's a series where we have been looking at the greatest sermon ever preached, and it just happened to be preached by Jesus himself. And so far, we have learned in this message called the Beatitudes that Jesus was showing us ways in how we need to live in order for us to become more like him. As we've already seen, most of them are somewhat counterintuitive to our human nature. In week one, we covered blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what we learned is that uh, being poor in spirit is first just realizing how spiritually bankrupt we are as sinners before a holy God. And we must realize how absolutely dependent we are upon God's amazing grace. And this poverty of spirit leads us to ask and to receive God's forgiveness. And with his forgiveness comes the promise of eternal life that begins the very moment that we decide to follow Jesus. Last week we discussed, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And what we learned was that maturing Christians are also people who mourn over the right kinds of things. They are people who, who experience the blessed comfort of God because they lament over the inevitable losses of life. They experience sorrow over their own sins, and they cry out in the, for the condition of other people, suffering people, and those who endure injustice. And most of all, they mourn over lost people, people who do not know Jesus as of yet. Well, today we are going to look at Matthew 5, 5. It'll be up on the screen behind me. And we're going to add one more inner characteristic. This is one more attitude that is required of a Christian who is seeking spiritual maturity and Christ-likeness. Jesus says in verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Jesus is saying that a growing Christ follower is a meek Christ follower. He also says Christians who embrace this attitude are blessed because their meekness makes it possible for them to inherit the earth. Now this statement would have been a shocking statement for Jesus to say in this moment of, of Israel's history. I'm sure when he uttered these words and he looked down that mountainside at all the many faces that were staring back up at him that there were a lot of turned heads there were probably a lot of dropped jaws. What I mean by that is meekness and inheriting the earth just didn't fit well in the Jewish mindset of that particular day. It was not an attitude that they embraced. In fact, it is one that they absolutely rejected. You see, in the first century, Jewish people believed that the only way to inherit the land, more accurately, I should say, to, to get back the promised land that God had, had already given them uh, was to overthrow the Roman government. And in their way of thinking, that certainly never could become a reality by embracing the virtue of meekness. They looked and they hoped for a Messiah who would be more like a conquering hero, someone who would swoop down with great power, someone who would usher in this great kingdom with military might and who would chase the Romans all the way back to Italy. But understand, Jesus did not burst on the scene with that kind of an agenda. He didn't preach a message of political revolution. 
nor did he organize an army to throw off the tyranny of Rome. Instead, he challenged the people to embrace the virtues of love and peace and humility and gentleness and, yes, meekness. And as I said, this was a complete opposite approach that most Jews would have taken at that time. In fact, I want to do a quick review of Jewish history to help you to understand why. A little over a half century before Jesus was born, in 63 BC, Pompey the Great annexed Palestine, therefore making it a part of the Roman Empire. And when he did this, Jewish independence, an independence that had only recently been gained from the Greeks in the Maccabean Revolt, was lost. So from 63 BC on, the land was ruled by Herodian kings. They were a family of, of what you would call puppet monarchs that were appointed by the Roman Caesar, by the Roman governors and, and procurators. So these were sad days for the proud, independent-minded Jewish people. They despised Roman oppression. In fact, they despised it so much that they would not even admit that they were under it. Do you remember when Jesus told the Jewish leaders in John 8, 32, he said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free? Well, if you continue to read the next verse, this is how they answered him in John 8, 33. We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? But in spite of the stubborn refusal of the Jewish leaders to admit it, in 33 AD, the enslaving shadow of Rome was everywhere. You couldn't walk on the streets without hearing the marching legions walking all around. And because of this, gentleness and meekness was not something that, that even entered into their thinking until Jesus mentions it in this sermon. So when Jesus arrived and began doing all of his miracles of healing the sick and, and raising the dead and, and giving sight to the blind and walking on water, well, the people, they got, they got excited. They saw all of this incredible power, and they thought it was the key to ending their Roman oppression. And speaking of powers, you may recall the time where Jesus fed 5,000 people with a lunch that was designed to feed one small boy. Well, when the people, and I just, we talked about this not too long ago, when the people saw this miracle, right then and there, they wanted to make Jesus king. They wanted him to lead a revolution to get them back their promised land. They thought Jesus' amazing abilities were a key to re-inheriting their part of the earth. So with all of this in mind, you can imagine the reaction that Jesus was given when he spoke these words. They must have thought to themselves, wait a minute, this isn't what I was expecting. What kind of Messiah is this anyway? Is he, he going to use his powers to kick out these pagans? And you have to wonder exactly what kind of a crowd Jesus was drawing with that kind of an approach. They were thinking, we don't want a bunch of meek people. They'll never be able to handle Rome. Besides, this is our land. We've already inherited it. We need someone to turn these pagan legions out of here, to turn them away. So I'm certain the people were somewhat shocked by Jesus' words. They were perplexed by this particular beatitude. But the truth is, this particular beatitude 
is just as perplexing to us today. It doesn't make any more sense in our culture than it did 2,000 years ago. Because in this text, once again, we come across a beatitude that is completely contrary to the thinking of our modern-day society. Sure, we don't have Romans to worry about that have invaded our land, but let's face it, our society does not respect meekness any more than the Jews did. No, our culture honors strength. It honors power and ability and self-assurance and aggressiveness. I mean, if we were to develop our own version of the Beatitudes, it would read, happy are the aggressors. We are aggressive in everything we do, from business to sports to politics to even our children's academics. According to today's way of thinking, people who exhibit initiative and power and strength are the ones who are going to inherit the earth, not the meek. For most of us, meek means weak, and none of us want to be thought of as weak, particularly men. Frederick Nietzsche once referred to this verse, and he said, and I quote, I regard this as the most fatal and seductive lie that ever existed. And Nietzsche was not alone in his negative opinion on this concept. In our world today, the word meek is usually not used as a compliment. You don't put this character trait on your resume, do you? Because be honest, what do you think of when you think of a person being meek? I'll tell you what you think of because I've thought of it myself. You think of some spineless, jellyfish kind of an individual, someone with no conviction. We think of them as meek as a mouse. We don't admire the quality of meekness. For example, I want you to think about your work situation. What is your boss trying to get you to become? Is meekness one of those characteristics? I'm pretty confident not. And if you happen to be sales and marketing, which I was in for many years, is meekness high on the list of preferred characteristic traits of the, of the seminars that you attend that show you how to sell more? Is that how you close more deals and become successful? Do you climb the corporate ladder on the rungs of meekness? I don't think so. If you're an athlete, does, does meekness help you to win points with the head coach? I would say absolutely not. So our culture does not value meekness. The conventional wisdom of our world is taught us that if you want to be somebody who is important, if you want to go somewhere, if you want to inherit your share of the earth, then be aggressive. Be a winner. Be confident. But don't be meek. Don't be humble. Don't let people push you around. This week, I found an excerpt from a New York Times article where the writer observes that humility is not what it used to be. He goes on to say that meekness or humility may be the exact opposite of what it used to mean. I want you to listen to what he wrote. Lately, it's pro forma, possibly even mandatory, for politicians, athletes, celebrities, and other public figures to be vocally and vigorously humbled by every honor awarded, prize won, job offered, record broken, pound lost, shout out received, like copied, and thumb upped. 
diving at random into the internet and social media finds this new humility everywhere. A soap opera actress on tour is humbled by the outpouring of love of her fans. Comedians are humbled by big laughs. Yoga practitioners are humbled by achieving difficult poses. Athletes are humbled by good days on the field. Christmas volunteers are humbled by their own generosity and holiday spirit. And yet none of these people sound very humbled at all. On the contrary, they all seem exceedingly proud of themselves, hashtagging their humility to advertise their own status, success, sprightliness, generosity, moral superiority, and luck. When did humility get so cocky and vainglorious? You see what I'm getting at? Meekness and humility are not valued anymore today than they were the day that Jesus spoke those words. And since this, this statement is so contrary to our way of thinking, we need to take a very close look at it if we are ever going to truly understand what Jesus was trying to convey to us. And that's what I hope to do today. Let's begin by looking at two things that, that Jesus is not saying in Matthew 5, 5. When Jesus talked about meekness, he was not referring to weakness. To show you what I mean, we need to do some more Greek word study. The word translated that we translate as meek is praus, P-R-A-U-S. So add that to your Greek vocabulary that you've been compiling as we've done this series so far. After today, you should know four Greek words, penis, takis, pentheo, and now praus. Praus is a word that communicated the idea of power under control. In fact, it is a word described to use an animal that was domesticated, like a great a wild stallion that had been tamed or trained to obey the words or commands or to respond to the reins that were directing him. The animal still is just as powerful as it ever was before it was trained, but now that power is exerted at the right time and at the right moment. It is power under control. Proverbs 25, 28 refers to this aspect of meekness when it says, whoever has rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. In other words, without meekness, you got power, but you have no control over your power. People without this characteristic are like an unwalled, vulnerable city. On the other hand, Proverbs 16.32 says this, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. The scripture has a way of saying that, that meek people, self-controlled people, are very strong people. So meekness is not a synonym for weakness. To be meek doesn't mean spineless and cowardly. To be meek does not mean to be timid. To be meek does not mean you have to be a geek. No, meekness refers to power, but it is power that is under control. In his commentary on this text, William Barclay sums this up by saying, meek Christian, a meek Christian is someone, and I quote, who has every instinct under control, every impulse, every passion, every ounce of strength has been harnessed. In the context of this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was saying 
Blessed is the man who is not self-controlled, but who is God-controlled. Our Lord was saying that when it comes to to Christian discipleship, a meek person is someone who moment by moment yields his power, yields his life, and yields his will to the will of God. And we can see throughout the scriptures that Jesus practiced what he preached in this area because he is the perfect example of power under control. In Mel Gibson's film, The Passion, they did a great job of illustrating this fact. Do you remember how cruelly that movie showed Jesus being beaten? I I wouldn't say that it showed it cruelly. I would say that it showed it as it was. It was a very close reality of probably exactly what Jesus experienced that day. Remember the images of the nails being driven into his hands and into his feet? Well, in the movie, just like in real life, Jesus did not respond in kind. As the Bible says, instead of fighting back, instead of cursing those cruel Roman soldiers that were doing all these things to him, he forgave them over and over again. You see, no one took Jesus' life from him. He gave up his life on his own accord. Did this mean that Jesus was weak? Absolutely not. He was God in the flesh. He was and he still is omnipotent. He could have defended himself with just a thought, but he didn't do that. In fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before that he was arrested and beaten, Jesus rebuked Peter. You know why? Remember, Peter pulled out his sword defending his Lord. Cut off the ear of one of the servants, and Jesus stuck it back on his head and healed him at that moment. And and Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 26, 53, Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? In other words, Peter, I don't need your sword play. And I want you to remember back in 2 Kings 19.35, it only took one angel, read it, to kill 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in response to King Hezekiah's prayer. So understand, Jesus had at his disposal 72,000, if you do the math, of these powerful beings. Jesus was meek, but he was not weak. His power was controlled by his yielding to the will of the Father. So Jesus was not talking about weakness in verse 5. Absolutely not. True meekness has to do with the strength of inward discipline and not outer weakness. Well, the second thing that is not being said in this or inferred in this beatitude, when Jesus said that the meek would inherit the earth, He was not referring to land. I hate to disappoint you, but Jesus was not saying that if you are meek, if you will yield your will to his will, you'll be rich because you're going to inherit real estate. He wasn't saying a meek believer is one that I will reward by giving land in downtown Manhattan. He's not saying that at all. This kind of reminds me of a, a story of an old man who was sitting on the curb and he was crying. And a person came along and said, why are you crying? He said, well, I just found out John D. Rockefeller, the richest man on the world, in the world, died. And the person asked, well, why are you crying? Are you a relative of his? And the guy responded, he said, no, I'm not. That's why I'm crying. <laughs> just wanted to see if you were awake. 
Well, Jesus wasn't referring to this kind of earthly inheritance. Now, of course, the Bible tells us that as Christians, we are co-heirs with Christ, which means we are heirs to everything that he has. One day, we will possess, the Bible says, mansions in heaven specifically, boy, I have a hard time saying that, specifically prepared for us by him. But I don't think that's what Jesus is referring to in this sermon. I think he is saying that when we are biblically weak, when we yield every moment to God, no matter what comes our way in life, when we are armed with that kind of an attitude, those moments of self, in those moments of self-control, we control the situation. Think of it. The world is ours when we learn to, to trust God completely. When we follow what the scriptures say in Psalm 5611, in God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Let me put it this way. The world belongs to the person who has control over his or her emotions. The, this kind of meek individual controls or rules the situation no matter how tough the situation may be because he's not controlled or ruled by it. I mean, if you are truly a meek person, you are no longer a victim. I love this true story about George Washington Carver. One day, he was standing on the street in Tuskegee, Alabama, when a prim and proper white woman walked up to him. Now, she assumed that because he was black, that he must be poor, down on his luck, that he must have been a sharecropper or something. Not knowing that he was a world famous for his inventions and scientific experiments, she asked if he would paint the picket fence around her house. Dr. Carver said, sure, I'd be happy to. A few hours later, a friend of this woman walked by her house and saw George Washington Carver painting her fence. She walked in and she said, oh my, do you know who's painting your fence? The woman said, no, I don't. The other woman said, that's the famous scientist, George Washington Carver. That's the man who has done so much to help the South with his many inventions. The woman immediately ran outside, nearly overcome by embarrassment and shame, and she said, Dr. Carver, I am so sorry. I thought you were a poor man looking for an odd job. Please forgive me. And Carver said, he smiled and he said, that's okay. I didn't have much to do today. I'm very happy to paint your fence. You see, Dr. Carver could have been a victim of prejudice on that day. He could have responded in bitterness to her, to his ill treatment, but due to his Christ-like meekness, the godly man did not respond that way. He controlled or he ruled that situation. He flew or soared above the, his pre, that prejudice that was so thick in the South at that time because he embraced this attitude. He knew that God was ultimately in control. Well, I think that this is what Jesus was talking about that particular day. In this sermon, our Lord was saying people with self-control, people who are prouse, prouse people, are blessed people. As one biblical commentary put it, they are spiritually prosperous. They are growing toward daily Christ-likeness. And as I alluded to earlier, we get this self-control by giving our moments, no matter how difficult they may be, 
into our Heavenly Father's hands. This is where we get the power to respond in ways like George Washington Carver responded. Genuine happiness in life, I believe, comes from allowing God to control our days. You see, God's indwelling spirit does not make us weak. It does not make us cowardly. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of what? But of power and of love and of a sound mind. Another translation says, but of love and of self-discipline. I believe that when God's people walk in meekness, when we embrace the attitudes of humility and gentleness, when we surrender the desire to defend our reputation, when we crucify our pride and we stop losing sleep over what other people think about us, when we give up the pursuit of our own interests and we become a servant of others, that is when we find great peace. That is when we find freedom. That is when we find rest. When we embrace this attitude of life, we do indeed inherit the earth. So let me ask you, is anyone mistreating you? A boss, a coworker, a neighbor? Is life rough for you right now? Is life mistreating you? Does it burden you in some way? Well, you don't have to be a victim any longer. Accept Jesus' invitation in Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30, because listen to what he says. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In other words, trust God in that situation and all situations. Give it to him. Ask him for the power to forgive people, even if they don't ask for your forgiveness. In meekness, ask God to enable you to endure whatever difficulty is plaguing you at the moment. If you do, you will rule that situation rather than that situation ruling you. I hope this helps you to understand meekness a little bit better. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? Meekness, as, as mentioned in this beatitude, is basically giving control of our lives to God. This decision comes from our understanding that we are sinners. We are talkists without God's grace. And also from the awareness that because of God's omniscience, it is foolish to think that we know more than he does. So a meek person is basically a surrendered person. It is someone who admits that they need God's wise guidance. So I guess the question at this point is how are we doing when it comes to this particular attribute? How meek of a person are you? How prous are you? In his commentary on this uh, passage, Chris Bennett suggests a few questions that will help us to determine whether or not we have embraced this essential Christian attitude. And here's the first one. Number one, what is your attitude towards God's written word? Would you say that you are a Christian that lives according to the teachings of the Bible that God has given you? 
James 121 says, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Well, how are you doing when it comes to this? How do you respond when you're reading the Bible and God shines a searchlight onto your heart and he exposes something and at that moment you know you are not doing what you are supposed to do. You have copped the wrong attitude. You're on the wrong side of an issue. What do you do when that happens? Do you make excuses? You say, oh, well, Lord, nobody's perfect, either am I. In other words, do you go into denial? Or do you receive the word of God and try through the power of the Holy Spirit to bring your life into conformity with the teachings of God's word so that God might be glorified? Now understand this morning, Bible readers, I am not asking if you read the word of God and I'm not even asking if you study the word of God, but rather do you meekly submit to the word of God that you've been studying and reading? The prophet Amos reminds us that God has said in his word is a plumb line. It is a plumb line for our lives. We need that plumb line to stay level. Well, are you meekly using it in just the right way? Or do you proudly make decisions based upon the standards of this fallen world in which we live? Because if you are, I want to remind you, those standards are falling further and further every single day of existence. Well, this leads to a second question to use to determine how meek we are, and this is it. Number two, do you strive to to be a truly spirit-led person? When God's still small voice tells you to do something, how do you respond to that voice? Do you say, sorry, Lord, I'm a little bit too busy right now, maybe some other time? Jesus said that we are to receive God's word with meekness, meaning that we are to submit to God's word. Do you do that? Do you yield control of your life to God's spirit, or do you proudly run according to your own desires and passions? Do you follow the instructions of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Do you meekly seek God's spirit leading in every decision you need to make, or do you proudly and foolishly lean on your own understanding? Let's get a little more practical with these last two diagnostic questions. Number three, what is your attitude toward people who disagree with you or criticize you? Is your knee-jerk reaction to say, okay, put up your dukes. We're going to go at this. Let's throw it down right now. And I'm not even talking physically, because sometimes we put up our verbal dukes, and we want to spat with somebody. We want to get into a confrontation with them. Do you not only love to argue, but do you always have to be right? Do you have to win every debate that you're a part of? It's getting hot in here. If your answer is yes then you need to understand that truly meek people don't have a sense of glory in themselves. A meek person isn't hypersensitive to critical comments that people make, doesn't live his life or her life on the defensive, doesn't lay awake at night worrying about what other people think about them. His or her one desire is to please the Lord. So when people 
malign a person of meekness, the knee-jerk reaction isn't to fight back. Whenever they've been wrong, they don't seek revenge. They don't seek retaliation. Instead, they embrace a spirit of gentleness, of patience, and of long-suffering. In John Ortberg's book, Everybody's Normal Until You Get to Know Them, I like that title, he says that we're a lot like porcupines, that prickly pear animal that has almost 30,000 quills attached to their bodies. Each quill can be driven deeply into the flesh of an enemy. And I don't know about you, but I've often wondered why God invented porcupines. What, what purpose do they serve? Do, we don't eat them, right? It's, it, you know God has a sense of humor when you look at a porcupine. But as a general rule, porcupines have two methods of handling relationships, either withdraw or attack. They either head for the hills or they lock and load. As Ortberg says, each one carries their own little arsenal of quills. And he says that we as human beings also carry our own arsenal of little quills. Our barbs, we give names like rejection and condemnation and judgment and resentment, and arrogance, and, and selfishness, and envy, and contempt. Well, a meek person will not only avoid throwing these kinds of quills at others, but when barbs like this come from other people, instead they will absorb them without lashing back. So how do you respond? Listen, no one is perfect. We know that, except God alone. But here's the truth. Your spouse will disappoint you. Your kids, if they haven't, will fail you at some point. You, you have friends that, if they haven't already, will let you down. Your church will drop the ball sometime. Your pastor will not meet your expectations. The time will come when you're going to have a legitimate gripe. You will be right, and someone else will be wrong. And at that moment, you will find yourself at the crossroads of meekness. So which path? are you going to take? Will you launch with some quills of, of condemnation? Will you start to give the cold shoulder and say, I'm never going to talk to that person again the rest of my life because, excuse me, I was offended? Or will you grant them grace? Will you grant them gentleness? One final diagnostic question that ties in with something we talked about last week. What is your attitude toward people who repeatedly stumble and fall into sin? Do you secretly delight in other people's moral failures? Does it make you think you're better than them by comparison? Do you revel in their embarrassment and shame? I've heard pastors talk about pastors who had a moral failure and say it with a gleam in their eye. And that bothers me. Because you know what I think? There but the grace of God could go any one of us. But I've seen that, and that's a hard thing to handle. Do you ever get excited over the sins of others and smugly say, I told you so, I could see that one coming from a thousand miles away. Only a fool would have fallen for that. I wouldn't have been that dumb. I mean, do you have a secret sense of satisfaction whenever somebody who maybe you looked up to blows it? As I look back over some recent headline news stories, several come to mind, and it is our response to the, these stories that tell us a whole lot about our level of meekness. 
don't know if you remember reading about that Penn State fraternity that got in trouble for basically poisoning a pledge with an alcohol-fueled hazing. And then they let him lie unconscious on the floor for 12 hours before calling 911, and he died. Well, when those fraternity brothers were sentenced, did you feel an inner, yes, finally, those rich frat boys finally got what was coming to them? Or how about all those people that were killed in that gay nightclub in Orlando a few years ago? Did you think, well, if they'd obeyed God's word and not got off thing, this would have never happened? I mean, do you ever rejoice over the sins of others? Proud people do. But meek people don't do that. Gordon McDonald shared a story about visiting a small Alcoholics Anonymous group. He said that he visited the group because he has friends who are recovering alcoholics. So he wanted to see for himself what goes on in these meetings, what benefit they were receiving from going to these uh, these recovering alcoholics. I want you to listen to what he wrote. He said, one morning, Kathy, I guessed her age at 35, joined us for the first time. One look at her face caused me to conclude that she must have been Hollywood beautiful at 21 years of age. Now her face was swollen, her eyes red, her teeth rotting, her hair looked unwashed, uncombed, for who knows how long. I've been in five states in the past months, she said. I've slept under bridges on several nights, been arrested, raped, robbed. Now she's weeping. I don't know what to do. I don't want to be homeless anymore. But I can't stop drinking. I can't stop can't. Next to Kathy was another woman, Marilyn, sober for more than a dozen years. She reached with both arms towards Kathy and pulled her close, so close that Kathy's face, face was pressed to Marilyn's breast. It was, I was close enough to hear Marilyn speak quietly to, into Kathy's ear. Honey, you're going to be okay. You're with us now. We can deal with this together. All you have to do is keep coming here. Hear me? Keep coming. And then Marilyn kissed the top of Kathy's head. I was awestruck, he said. The simple words, the affection, the tenderness, how Jesus-like. I couldn't avoid a troubling question that morning. Could this have happened in the places where I have come to worship? Would there have been space for Kathy to tell her story? Would there have been Marilyn's to respond in this way? Well, here's how I would answer that man's question. When a church is full of growing and maturing Christians, believers who embrace this quality called meekness, yes, Kathy could tell her story. And yes, Kathy could get the help that she needed. And people like Marilyn would inevitably reach out to her and help because growing Christians obey the scriptures. Like Galatians 6.1 where it says this, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Liz, will you come forward? Help me to close this down.